Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you've been enjoying the show, please do consider contributing to our crowdfunding page on the website Patreon. That's patreon.com slash always take notes. For as little as $2 or £2 a month, you can get a great range of rewards. The best of them is a collection of magazine pictures from Simon, myself and other co-hosts of the show. Simon is going to tell us a little bit about our latest Patreon donor. We'd like to give a shout out to David Patrick-Arakos, who's recently signed up to support the show. David is a British journalist, author and TV producer, best known as the author of War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. He's also a contributing editor at The Daily Beast and a contributing writer at Politico Europe. Thank you very much indeed, David. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to Patrick Radden Keefe, an author and staff writer at The New Yorker. We spoke to Patrick about his early reporting on the US National Security Agency, his entry into writing for The New Yorker, and his latest award winning book, Say Nothing. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Patrick, to Always Take Notes. Thank you for joining us in another remotely recorded episode. I wondered if we could start by talking about your entry into journalism, because you studied at Columbia, Yale, Cambridge and LSE. How did you go from all of that studying into writing? Well, I I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, I just didn't know quite how to make it happen. So when I was when I was an undergrad, I would I would send off um, not even pitches, but I would I would write these articles and send them off to magazines. Um, and this is like the mid 1990s. So I would print them out and send them off in manila envelopes and collect, uh, rejection slips. Um, and so I just kind of went to school for years, um, to grad school in the UK. And then I came back and I went to law school and I was, it was the second week of law school, uh, for me at Yale when, um, the September 11th attacks happened and, at that point, I had I had done some graduate work on signals intelligence and wiretapping by intelligence agencies, and so suddenly, this what had been a pretty obscure field of study that I knew a little bit about. You know, I'd written a master's thesis, so it's not like I was an expert by any stretch, um, but I knew a bit more than the next person, and it was suddenly germane in a way that it hadn't been before. And so, um, I, I kind of did it all backwards. I, I had tried and failed to be a magazine writer. And um, what I did instead was got a, a contract to write my first book. And that was kind of how I, I got up and running. And that happened when I, was, when I was at law school. What were the mechanics of that, Patrick, in terms of an agent and writing a proposal? How did you feel your way through that uh, without having had much public experience before then? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting story to tell in the sense that the, um, I think, uh, unquestionably, my own privilege uh, plays a role in how how easy this part of it ended up being, um, and also just a huge a huge amount of luck. So I I didn't know anything about how you got a book contract. I figured out you needed an agent to do that. Um, I went to the bookstore and I I sort of picked up books and looked in acknowledgments and figured out that generally in nonfiction books people thank their agents. And my research for finding an agent was literally that I had read, I was just started taking note of who people thanked in the acknowledgements of books I liked. And 
at around that time, you know, within the space of three or four months, I had read um, Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, and Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. And when I looked in the acknowledgments, they both thanked the same person, uh, this woman, Tina Bennett. And I thought, well, she, she couldn't be too bad. And so I wrote to her. She was the first agent I wrote to. And I, I just wrote her a short little email that said, I'm a law student. I remember this is right after 9-11. Mm -hmm. I did graduate work on U.S. intelligence using global eavesdropping um, for its strategic, to advance its strategic and security aims. Um, I think this might be a book. And she called about three hours later. And so it's kind of ridiculous. And, and it turns out that she's, she's an amazing agent. I mean, she was then and, and, and is still, and I've been with her ever since. Um, but I, it's a tricky one to talk about, right? Because the fact that I was this like Ivy League white guy may, may have helped in some respects, you know, at, at, at um, you know, my first year at Yale Law School and, and then just a lot of dumb luck, right? The notion that I just happened to read these two books that thank the same person who happened to get back to me. I'm fully aware that it doesn't usually work that way. I quite like that um, considered approach though. <laughs> if other people are thanking her, she must be good. How did you um, go about researching that book? Because obviously government eavesdropping is not a particularly penetrable subject. Yeah, I mean, it's funny if if getting the book contract and the agent seemed easy, um, doing that book was incredibly hard. And uh, in retrospect, I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I hadn't gone to journalism school. I hadn't worked at a newspaper. Nobody had kind of sat me down and said, this is how you report. And so a lot of it was me being an outsider. I did, you know, I didn't have a, a newspaper or a magazine I, I was writing for. Um, persuading people to talk to me was really hard just to take me seriously at all. Did you, Patrick, was this when you just asked around in pubs by Filingdale's listening station in, in the UK? I think I saw that in an, in an interview. I did do that, yeah. I went to, um, there were a few of those places because, I mean, a, a number of these big eavesdropping installations are in the UK. Could you just explain what, what Filingdale's is for, for people? Well, it, it, was, it was Men With Hill was the big oh, one okay. that I, yeah, which is a kind of crazy American listening installation that was built during the Cold War uh, in the Yorkshire Moors in England. And so it's this amazing kind of pastoral landscape and you come up over a hill and suddenly you see this vista of these enormous, what, what look like enormous golf balls, um, which have uh, satellites for satellite eavesdropping inside. And there were something like 1,500 or 2,000 Americans who lived on this listening base that looked like something that had been, you know, sort of dropped into the English countryside, you know, from a, from a, a bad science fiction film. Um, and so that was the sort of thing, right? So, so I, I literally just kind of walked around and talked to people in the area and went to the local pub. At a certain point, my, you know, my status as an outsider probably became a, a kind of shtick with that book. But the, um, I had a very, I had a number of editors on that book and, and the best of the, of the four who I had, um, because they all kept getting fired, told me at a certain point when I was about halfway through, she got me to read, um, Jeff Dyer's book, uh, out of sheer rage, mm -hmm. which is, you know, his book about not being able to write a book about DH Lawrence. And, um, that, that proved to be a very savvy, editorial suggestion on her part. In what way, in terms of structuring the book or just the general approach? 
Well, in terms of the voice and the idea that I think to a degree I probably didn't appreciate when I started writing about it, it, it ended up being a book about how it's impossible to write a book about the NSA. Um, that the degree of secrecy means that it's extremely hard to, to verify anything. And it also means that um, when you think about things like paranoia and conspiracy theories, the, the sort of myths that accrue around a secret government intelligence service are in some ways kind of anthropologically interesting themselves. Um, and so the, so the book was, was a bit offbeat in, in that regard. How did your path to The New Yorker come about? You're obviously known for your magazine writing there now, as well as your subsequent books. How did you begin contributing to the magazine and how did that go forward? Well, I mean, like I said, like I said it's, it started with me um, sending them many, many articles uh, when I was an undergraduate in college and them always politely writing back that they didn't have any room for them. Um, so that was not a situation in which it just, I just sort of waltzed in. Um, it took years and years of trying to break in. And eventually I, that first book chatter came out. I had taken a year off of law school to finish it. I went back to law school for my final year and finished law school. And when I came out, I stumbled across what I thought was a really interesting story about a woman in Chinatown, in New York City's Chinatown, who had been a human smuggler, um, a woman named Cheng Chui Ping. It was known as Sister Ping. And I pitched The New Yorker. I pitched um, my the guy who's now my editor, Daniel Zaleski. And initially, they didn't assign it. What they said was, you know, why don't you go out and, and report on spec for a few months and see if you can get people in Chinatown to talk to you. You know, I didn't speak the language. Again, I was very much an outsider here as well. And so I did. I, I sort of slowly accumulated sources and got to know the neighborhood and eventually was able to persuade them um, that there was enough there for a story and that I, could, I thought I could do it right. And then at that point, they gave me that assignment. And I, I then freelanced for them for the next six years. In terms of finding stories in a general sense, I know that obviously in terms of investigative work, it's helpful to have tips and people that will speak to you and sources and all of that. But in general, what kind of um, intrigues you or makes you think, oh, there might be something in this? You know, I, I've never been able to really systematize it. It's hard to know. I, I just feel like I I have a nose for a, the kind of story that appeals to me. And I, and most of the time I know pretty early on whether the necessary ingredients are there. I mean, the, the kind of writing I like to do for magazine, for the magazine certainly is, um, tends to be these long investigative pieces that with, a, with a pretty heavy narrative component to them. So it's generally important to me that there be a story, that there be kind of twists and turns in the road and that there be characters who are compelling enough to pull you through it. I almost never start with a start with a an issue and then work my way around to figuring out who the who the people are. It's generally the opposite. I'll I'll what draws me in is a compelling story about people and that's the way I um I get drawn into, you know, whatever the issue is, um, insider trading and hedge funds or uh, corruption in the mining sector in West Africa or whatever it is. You know, invariably, it's it's the human dynamics um, that appeal to me on the, on the front end. And then I, I kind of delve into the 
the larger issues from there. I was trying to work out in the pieces you, you sent over what if there's a kind of common theme that you're returning to. And I was wondering, is it is it secrets? Is that do you have some you know, have you have you thought about that yourself? Is there something fundamental kind of itch that you're trying to scratch with this work, do you think? Or is that looking too analytically at it? It's funny. The only time I ever think about this is when I'm asked that question. <laughs> um, and so there's a tendency you know, to tr- to retroactively try and find threads that connect them all. Um, I do think that this this notion of secret worlds is something that I keep coming back to, and and certainly that's a thread with the three books that I've written. So there's that, but but honestly, it's not anything I've I've actually thought all that deeply about analytically. Um, it may just be that I I think like a lot of us, right? I, there's just certain types of stories that get my pulse quickening and I and I can't I probably couldn't really explain analytically why it is um so I tend to just kind of zig and zag from you know one thing to the next but but I suppose yeah secrets secrecy and secret worlds maybe um or corruption or denial I mean there are certain kind of broad ideas and themes that are really interesting to me you mentioned that um the story that became the snakehead in 2009 in, in Chinatown and the inner workings of this trafficking empire. Um, you were, you began work on that as a freelancer. How easy is it to do investigative work as a freelancer, given the sort of legal and editorial support required? I think it's really hard. I mean, in terms of legal and editorial, I never, I never had any gripes. I freelanced for years, um, primarily for The New Yorker and Slate. I did longer things for The New Yorker and shorter things for Slate, though I wrote for other places as well. And I always felt pretty well taken care of editorially and legally. The issue was more, um, it's a tough way to make a living in the sense that all of the inefficiencies of the business are kind of borne by you, the individual. Um, so, you know, never mind the idea that you don't have health insurance or, uh, you know, a pension or, or any of those things. I mean more that um, pitching multiple stories, it takes a while to cultivate a story. You're generally working on spec as you accumulate sources. There's an expectation by the time you get an assignment that you've actually put in a great deal of legwork. And if you put in all that legwork and then the piece doesn't appeal or for whatever reason, you know, there's another writer at the magazine doing something somewhat similar there's any number of reasons why something cannot work out. The magazine, and I'm not just talking about The New Yorker here, I think this is true generally of publications, you know, they just kind of keep moving. That's what they need to do. In some ways, it's what they have to do. The the fungibility of your time is sort of priced into their business model. And I I don't even fault them for that. But I think for for the freelancer, it's really difficult, or it certainly was for me, because you... You don't always know what what people are looking for and what's going to land, and so um, I I spent an inordinate amount of time pitching and and trying to report out things that didn't end up finding a home. Um, it wasn't easy. So it's a it's a rule of the show that we always ask about money and how it uh, affects people's writing lives. Um, you, you've alluded to that in the previous question, and you just speak about this as. as openly or as, as not as you're comfortable doing. But during that period that you were freelancing, were you living exclusively off your journalism work? Were you doing other work around the side? And how did that change once you, you became a, a staff writer and, and, and now, as it were? Has it got easier? Uh, it's gotten a lot easier. I mean, in my case, during the whole time that I was freelancing, I had another job. I had a full-time job, 
which it was it was a so I I worked at a think tank pretty much the whole time, and that was I say full time job. I mean that that position it didn't pay all that well either, but it did accommodate some of my writing, so I was able to to support the writing and research in that way. And in some ways, it kind of subsidized the work that I was doing. But I, you know, I started doing work as a screenwriter. Um, and certainly during those freelancing years, I probably made a lot more money writing unproduced screenplays than I did for magazine articles uh, or books. So that aspect of it was was tricky. But but and here I may differ from some other people you've spoken with, but I, I, I sort of never expected it to be otherwise in the sense that I just thought this is the greatest job imaginable. It kind of makes sense that it's not hugely remunerative and stable and that you'll, you know, you don't have to worry about sending your kids to college. Yeah. To me, the, the magic of the job itself was always enough that I took it for granted from the outset that it would be a hustle and that it was a hustle that I had to work hard to maintain. And, and, um, that was always my attitude. And so I actually didn't, it was fine for me trying to find other ways to pay the bills along the way, because I truly, the magazine stuff for me, I, I was doing for pleasure. And, uh, I did eventually get put on staff at the New Yorker and, 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 um, that was a big change for me. I mean, it, it, it introduced a degree of stability. It allowed me to leave the think tank. So that was a, that was a good development for me six, six years in. How does a job like that come about? Do you have to apply or is it a sort of tap on the shoulder <laughs> situation? I think it has varied a lot over the years. During the time when I was freelancing, The New Yorker, um, I used to think of it as like the, <laughs> like the mafia, you know, when they open the books. They only open the books to, uh, to make someone a made man um, once in a long while. So they, they weren't making that many staff writers at the time. Um, you know, there were people like Evan Osnos and Ari Levy and Rafi Kachadorian who were joining the staff. But it was like one or two a year, maybe. And that has changed dramatically um, in recent years, I think in part because the, the web operation at the New Yorker is so robust now that um, you know, that's both bringing in revenue and it's also creating a need for more writers, both at the magazine and on the web. And there's loads of people who do both. Um, in my case, it was a, I, had, um, <laughs> I had written a couple of pieces for other magazines I'd written a, a cover story for the New York Times magazine. And after that piece, they, they offered me a staff job. Could you talk a bit about the mechanics of how it works? Like how many pieces are you expected to do? Are they for the web or for, you know, the split between the web and the magazine? And is it exclusive? Like how, how does the actual sort of your year work out in terms of what you're, what you're expected to produce for the New Yorker? So it, it varies a great deal from writer to writer, and then also uh, from year to year. Everybody's on a one-year contract. Those get negotiated and renegotiated along the way. Um, there's generally an expectation of, if not total exclusivity, then near exclusivity. So there's often a list of other publications that they would not want you to write for. There are exceptions to that. I mean, my colleague Nathan Heller writes for The New Yorker and for Vogue. But in my case, yeah, I'm, I, there's a, uh, a kind of contractual expectation of monogamy when it comes to 
magazine stuff. In terms of the number of pieces, that varies dramatically. And, um, you know, in my case, in recent years, it's meant something on the order of three or four long pieces a year. And there are people who have bigger contracts and people who have smaller contracts. And my own has yo-yoed a little bit uh, from one year to the next. And when you're doing those three or four long pieces a year, are you spending the three or four months, you know, reporting each one? Yes, though it's almost never um, as discreet as that. Generally, there will be a lot of overlap. So there will be things that take a year but are stop and start. And then there'll be something else that's that. I can bang out in 10 weeks that kind of comes in the middle, um, particularly given the kind of reporting that I do. Often you're waiting. There's waiting <laughs> uh, or kind of patient digging, uh, which, is, which is part of the process. And so long ago, I, I had to figure out how to... Um, I basically figured out that I couldn't have a situation in which I'm working on a single piece and then I finish it and it's done and I start on the next one. Uh, that there has to be some degree of, of overlap. So at any given moment in time, I'm working on two and maybe three. Can we talk a bit about your process? And that you know, these pieces are hugely research intensive and numerous sources and so forth. How do you go about marshalling your material? Do you use Scrivener? Do you have a system with that? And then a bit with, you know, with editing, do you aim to turn in a pretty clean draft or do you discuss earlier with your editor? We, we really like to kind of lift the lid on how people do their jobs. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, on on um, on the reporting, I'm hopelessly old-fashioned. I have used Scrivener for the book that I'm working on now, and I used it on my last book, but I abandoned it by the point where I got to actually writing chapters. It was a it was helpful in the early going as a as a way, basically, of organizing this big compost heap of stuff. We should, we should say, sorry, that Scrivener is a, a writing-specific word processing program, that, just to explain to people who don't know what it is. Yeah, and which, and which many people swear by. And I, I, it's been very helpful to me, but in a, in a kind of a limited capacity. Um, no, I'm pretty old-fashioned. I mean, I, I have a notebook, and I have files on my desktop, and I would just gather everything. And, and the, the big thing that might be useful to talk about for me is that my process with this stuff has evolved in that given the expansive nature of the reporting, I realized at a certain point that there's a tendency for the reporting just to proliferate and proliferate outward. And this is in some ways maybe a weakness of my own personality is just that there's so many little side stories and they're so fascinating. And what about this character over here? And what about that incident back in such and such a year? And I can just happily do that every day you know, weekends, holidays, I will just gather string forever. And I realized at a certain point that it was necessary to not to start writing necessarily, but to pause pretty early on and create an outline and just sort of ask myself, what is the story that I'm telling and have a kind of notional outline of where I'm going just in terms of people and events. And then that becomes this organizing principle, which can govern the reporting moving forward. And so it actually becomes quite liberating to encounter some interesting little side story and say, oh, that's very interesting. And in another life, or if I was writing a 30,000 word article, I would spend the next three days researching that. But realistically, 
it doesn't fit. And if I try and make it fit, it will, it'll clot the narrative and slow the momentum of the piece. And I realize this may sound really elementary, but for me, that, that was quite a, quite a mid-career revelation. <laughs> once you've got that outline, does the structure within that change once you've sort of finished writing or is it mostly, you mostly stick with it once you've got it? I think of these, I mean, some of this is my, is my, all those years of screenwriting, but I, I think of story beats, whether it's a scene or a moment or an idea or, um, and so a, a piece for me starts like on the back of an envelope as 10 beats or 12 beats. And generally the beats don't change all that much. Sometimes I'll discover some new thing and want to add that to the mix. The order changes a lot always. Um, but the the basic sort of hinges of the piece. Yeah. yeah. Could we talk a bit about Say Nothing? And I was wondering whether the notion you alluded to earlier of being a an outsider with um with your eavesdropping book. When I was reading it, I was conscious that would it be fair to say you were kind of writing this as an insider outsider? So you're American, but you're Irish American. And I saw there's a review or a comment um, on the British edition I had that said, like, this was a book that had to be written by an outsider. That, it, you know, it had that kind of looking in quality that no one in the UK who was too close to events could have done. Is that is that a fair way of looking at it, do you think? Or were you just working in the same way you would with any other assignment? Yeah, I, I think there was an assumption that, that with my aggressively Irish name, <laughs> I... I must have brought something to this story, but the truth is I really didn't. And so, you know, much as when I did the snakehead, I was kind of parachuting into a culture and a history that was not my own and trying to be respectful and to talk to as many people as I could and to tell the story as I saw it. And as it came to me, it was the exact same thing here. So I do think there's a tendency even among some people who read Say Nothing to think this is like, this is Patrick Keefe from Boston, Irish American, like professional Irish American, um, telling us uh, his version of the troubles. But I really, I thought of it as just a, I thought of myself as a foreign correspondent, really. The sense in which I think it's a, I, I, I probably a fair thing to say, not, not that only an outsider could have written it, but, but what I think that reviewer was getting at is that there's a long history and literature of the troubles and it's such a vexed situation that particularly when reporting on the ground in and around Belfast, you know, if you're from England or, um, or the Republic of Ireland or Northern Ireland or Edinburgh <laughs> um, and you open your mouth and you start talking, people immediately hear your accent and reflexively, I think, start jumping to conclusions about um, who you are and uh, how you're going to perceive their situation. And the utility of being an American, even an American with an Irish name, is that I didn't really fit into that grid quite so easily, which I think meant that there were, that the, you know, that what I told people, which is that I'm, I'm objective, I'm an outsider, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm an empiricist here, you know, I'm not looking to advance some thesis I think was maybe more readily believable for, for if given that we're on this podcast, I can give you a, like a long form nerd, uh, example. So what I often thought about was, um, was Truman Capote going to Kansas, mm -hmm. going to the, to the plains. And when he shows up, 
he's like an alien to those people, right? He's this guy from New York City who is gay and effete and has this interesting voice and is sort of unabashedly intellectual and is a flirt and like wears enormous mufflers from Bergdorf Goodman. And there's a strange sense in which his outsiderness, I think, you know, maybe enabled him to, he was able to use that as a, as a kind of, as a repertorial guise. Who was your Harper Lee then in, in that? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I didn't, I didn't have one. I, I, I needed one desperately. Um, but I do think that, I think these are kind of interesting choices and I think about them all the time when I'm reporting, you know, do I try and close the distance between me and the person I'm talking to and mirror them and try and make them feel like I am like them? Or do I acknowledge the distance and the fact that I'm actually quite different? I'm coming from somewhere else altogether. What side do you come down on? Is it kind of, it depends on the situation? It depends on the situation. And, and you know, I noticed about myself, I, I just did this podcast and it was a very strange experience for me as a reporter because normally I'll go out, I'll interview dozens of people and write an article. And my voice in the article is a, is a consistent voice. Is this wind of change? Yeah, it's wind of change, right. Sure. But in, in a podcast, the weirdness of it is that when I'm doing these interviews, you hear my voice as well. And the truth is that in a way that was totally embarrassing for me to hear, I fluctuate the way that I speak depending on who I'm speaking to. So it, it, at times it felt to me, of course, it, it feels exaggerated to me. I'm sure it wasn't that, this bad um, for people who don't know me. But to me, it sounded like listening to somebody with multiple personality disorder, right? Because <laughs> when, I'm, when, I'm talking to, when I'm talking to, you know, an academic historian who's talking about uncovering musty files showing a CIA conspiracy back in the 1960s, there's one register. And then when I'm talking to... You know, the, like the guitarist from Skid Row, <laughs> it's a different me. Could we talk about the art of the right around? Uh, Jerry Adams in uh, Say Nothing, refusing to talk to you, but also in the pieces you sent over, that uh, extraordinary Mark Burnett piece, which is done, you know, he's not, he's not talking. How, again, what's your process with that? And, and I suppose a, a big theme in Winds of Change was like, when are you going to go and talk to the guy from the Scorpions and ask if the CIA wrote the song? You know, when do you interact with the, the person, all of that kind of process piece. Yeah, I, I love write arounds. I, I think um, I'm a big believer in them. I think that people should do more of them. Jerry Adams is a good example. So with Say Nothing, Jerry Adams didn't speak with me. But the truth is, had he talked to me, I don't know that I would have ended up with any more insight into who he is, I, in part because he's very scripted and controlled as an interlocutor, and in part because I think on some level he's he's a mystery even to himself. I mean, I don't think he's, whereas, you know, when I profiled um, Anthony Bourdain, there's somebody who's brutally honest and also kind of very smart about who he is. Um, I don't know that Jerry Adams would have been able to offer much uh, in either department. Um, the, I think the challenge for me with write-arounds is always, is there enough material that it won't feel like a write around. And so what that means in practice is, can you, do you have enough to work with that the reader can feel like they hear the voice of the person you're describing and kind of 
get a sense of what they're like in a room. And, you know, that, that can mean many things. It can be secondary interviews with people who know them. It can be other interviews that they've done, memoirs that they've written, letters that they've written, video that you find where they've spoken, depositions, court testimony, on and on and on. That's the kind of stuff I'm trying to gather with an eye to always trying to make it feel intimate enough that the reader doesn't spend the whole piece thinking, you're writing this from the outside, you never got access to the central person. So in Mark Burnett's case, to give you a good example, um, I didn't speak to Mark Burnett. I did interview both of his ex-wives. Um, and there have been other pieces where people did speak to Mark Burnett, but to neither of his ex-wives. And uh, you know, given the choice, um, <laughs> I prefer my way. They were almost certainly more honest than he would have been. It's a kind of Frank Sinatra has a cold thing, right? You know, you don't have access, but the inner sanctum can, can tell you quite a lot. I was wondering about um, the McConvilles. Obviously, this Jean McConville is the main figure in Say Nothing. How did you make that approach to her family, given how kind of raw and um, traumatic that episode was in their life? Uh, through intermediaries, which is often the way um, I'll approach people. So in that case, uh, I didn't go directly to them. I got to know some people who knew them. Um, and and made the case for why uh, I hope they would talk, and that's something I you know with with almost every piece. That's something that I'll do. Is um, there are some doors where I, I I won't go and knock on the front door right away. Instead, I'll try and find somebody who's proximate to the person I want to speak with and talk with them first. In their case, who is the intermediary? that you went to? So they had a, there was a journalist um, in Belfast, a filmmaker named Ali Millar, who had made a really wonderful film that Michael McConville in particular had appeared in. And she knew them and um, had maintained a good relationship with the family. And then there was, um, there's a, um, a group, a nonprofit that focuses on, um, uh, trauma and um, related issues uh, stemming from the troubles. And there was a woman who worked there who has also worked closely with the family. Um, I spoke with her as well uh, before making the, the connection directly. The kind of denouement of that book is, is where you suggest who you think committed the crime and, and putting it to them and so forth. What was the process of doing that like? And what has been, if any, the fallout of that? Well, as a reporter, it was easily the most significant decision I've ever had to make um, to accuse someone by name who's still alive of committing this heinous war crime. And I actually felt pretty good about it, I have to say. I mean, I think the the all of this is explained in some detail in the book in terms of my own process. But I... When I first stumbled upon the identity of this person, I was—I had discovered this clue, which sort of brought me maybe ninety percent of the way to certainty. And at that point, I wouldn't have published the name, but I did a bunch of additional due diligence and kind of got myself to a hundred percent, to a point where I was absolutely certain that this was correct. And then, after consulting with with lawyers um, all over the place, went to an attorney for this person and and basically got a no comment and um, you know, they never got back to me and then published the name. 
Um, and in terms of repercussions, there was no arrest, which was not totally surprising to me because the standard of proof for the police service of Northern Ireland or the public prosecution service in Northern Ireland is, is for good reason, is much higher than it is for me. Um, and this was a cold case murder uh, with only one living witness who is the person I accused um, from 1972. So um, no arrest was made. There was a denial kind of fairly late in the game after the book came out in Ireland and the UK. But uh, the, you know, no real subsequent developments other than um, uh, a fair amount of, um, you know, what, what would you call it? Kind of secondhand affirmation for me. So to give you an example, there were two people who were on the record as knowing who that murderer was. And they both wrote extensively about my book when it came out. One of them really liked it. The other really hated it. And neither of them said I'd named the wrong person. Interesting. Um, one thing that occurred to me when I was reading about your work and reading some of your pieces is, do you have libel lawyers just on speed dial? Um, no, I have. Maybe to, maybe to add a code to that question, do you think the fact that you're working in the US, not in Britain as well? Because I, I remember, you know, there are the big distinctions in how the law works in America. Is that a key part of being able to work as you do? Yes, I think that's that's probably true that there are robust protections here. And I've certainly written some very critical pieces about, um, in some instances, some some very wealthy uh, and in some cases litigious people. I, I generally feel Fabio Bertoni is the general counsel of The New Yorker and, and I have him on speed, speed dial. Um, I talk with him all the time. Uh, and my... <laughs> The attorneys, um, you know, at Doubleday, which publishes me here, and at William Collins, which published Say Nothing, were were also really, really helpful. But it, it's not a situation in which I, um, you know, I, I think part of this is having trained as a lawyer myself, I, I, I do tend to be pretty careful about what goes on the page. And so, you know, I think that that I try and be as, as careful as I can. And in some ways, you know, the more heinous the allegation like accusing somebody of murdering a widowed mother of 10, the more bulletproof the case has to be. Mm-hmm. Can we ask about prizes? Um, this is another kind of running theme that's come up in the podcast, what, what prizes people have won and what impact they've had on um, their careers. Jay Rayner memorably told us that prizes make it harder to fire you. Uh, and other people, we had Anne Enright talking about winning the Booker and how that shifted things for her. You won the National Book. Uh, Critics Circle Award be nominated for others. What impact have prizes had on your career? I don't know that they have had a big impact. I mean, the New Yorker is a good example. So, you know, I won the National Magazine Award a number of years ago, and that was a great affirmation. I think everybody was really, really happy about that, and I was pleased because it was a piece of work I was proud of. But I think there's also a recognition among my colleagues that these are incredibly arbitrary. These prizes. They're incredibly arbitrary. And so I just think personally, I had seen so much really worthy work not get recognized in that fashion that um, that when mine did, I took it with a, a big grain of salt. And 
in some ways, I, I would say the same is probably true at The New Yorker, um, that because they've had pieces year in, year out that are just amazing, amazing, amazing pieces uh, that for one reason or another didn't get recognized in that way. Um, you know, it makes it feel like it's a, you, you bought a, you bought a lottery ticket and you, you, you happen to win a modest jackpot and you'll go out and buy another ticket again tomorrow. Um, and it, with, with the, with the book, I mean, I, it's certainly been nice. Um, and I, I suppose maybe it drives sales though. I don't know that that's really true. But again, I'm just I'm always very aware of uh, of all the things that that don't get recognized in any given year. And, and so I think that has led me to it's not that I'm not appreciative. I'm I'm deeply appreciative, but, um, you know, a, appreciative in the in the way of somebody who's who's had a bit of dumb luck. Sort of related to that, how helpful have grants been? Because Say Nothing obviously took you four years to research and write. How did they support you in that process? Um, Grants have been hugely important for me. When I was a law student, just after getting the contract for my first book, I was, I think literally somebody canceled. I, I applied for a fellowship at the New York Public Library at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers to take a year off of law school and write this book. And I didn't get it. I got a rejection letter. And then a few weeks later, they called and they said, like, somebody else can't do it. Um, so we have an opening, would you like to do it? And I jumped at the chance and I, I moved into New York and that nine month period changed my life. I, I wrote that first book there. I met loads of people. I didn't really know that many people in, in kind of literary or journalism circles in New York. Um, and I, I formed relationships there that, that, um, continue to be really important to me today. So there have been others since then and that kind of additional support particularly when i was a freelancer was just it was make make or break there wouldn't have been a way to do the work um you know uh uh the snakehead my second book i i got a guggenheim to do that and i could i couldn't have done it i couldn't have done the travel and the reporting i just couldn't have afforded it so grants have been um pretty decisive for me could you tell us about the year you spent working in the US government. How did that come about and why were you interested in doing that? Yeah, my, my spooky sabbatical. Um, so my wife in 2009 got a job in Washington and we moved to Washington. And I had been, um, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, I had been kind of banging my head against the wall as a freelancer. And I was pretty convinced at that point that I wasn't going to go on contract at The New Yorker or anyplace else. I'd just written my second book and a guy who was a sometimes source for me who had been in the State Department said, hey, you know, if you're going to be in Washington, you should do a kind of a like a fellowship, basically, um, where you go in and see what it's like from the inside. And there's a thing called the inner, what is it called? The um, It's not the Intergovernmental Affairs Program, but it's something like that. Intergovernmental Personnel Act. Anyway, there was a there was a program where basically you could sort of get a fellowship for a year or two years to go into the government and work for one of the federal agencies. And so I ended up going in and working in the Department of Defense for a year in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I think my thinking had been that I would kind of 
put on my pith helmet and it would be like a little bushwhack through the bureaucracy and I would see it from the inside. Um, and in that respect, it ended up being a, a great investment of a year. Uh, <laughs> it also really clarified for me, you know, within a few weeks of arriving that what I really wanted to do was be a magazine journalist. <laughs> Have you ever been tempted to write a book about that experience or not <laughs> put it behind you? I think particularly given that it was the Department of Defense, it's just like such a vast bureaucracy. I mean, it made me really appreciate the work of um, Armando Iannucci, uh, like a film like In the Loop or or Veep does this as well. But I was just so struck. I think I went in thinking that the Pentagon would be, you know, like generals kind of striding with purpose through marble hallways. Um, and you get in there and it's like the DMV. I mean, in practice, it's it's just it's like tens of thousands of people who go to work in this enormous building. And most of them are just thinking, you know, can I sneak out of here in time to coach my kids Little League? And there's loads of redundancy because there's so much money sloshing through DOD that you have all these offices where they're like desperately trying to prove that what they do is different from what the people in the office down the hall do and that we should keep paying for both offices to do that. It was just, oh, the whole thing was was kind of comic from start to finish. Patrick, we're coming up towards the end of our time, but um, could you tell us a bit before we go about your screenwriting work, you know, how that began and how that has dovetailed with, um, you know, with your other pieces and maybe a bit about the, the kind of burgeoning relationship between, you know, the streaming services and long form nonfiction writing that's developed in the past 10 years. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I'd always been interested in film and um, so screenwriting was something I always wanted to do. And I, I have a really impressive record of unproduced <laughs> screenplays. I don't, it, it's amazing to think that somebody could go as long as I have, um, you know, writing things as paid gigs and seeing them not get made. But I started, I don't even remember when it was, but it was probably 2005, I think. I think that because the first writer's strike interrupted a project I was working on. And I just, you know, I had a friend who was a screenwriter who had a meeting with somebody at HBO and he he brought me into the meeting and we pitched a show. Um, and that first thing we did was it was a story sort of about the world of intelligence. So it was like right after I'd written Chatter and it was a world I knew about. And we sold the show to HBO and wrote a pilot and then they didn't make it, but they liked it. So they got us to write it different pilot about something else. They didn't make that. And at that point I was kind of off to the races. Um, but it's just been a thing I've done on the side for years. And it's, um, I mean, two, two thoughts that might be helpful. One is that the, the, the connection between long form and Hollywood, I think is, is like mostly good. I worry about it at times. I think that there's, there are some weird things going on where you get people who basically are producers who stumble on an idea or a story and they then, they feel like they can't set it up as, as a TV series or a film. And so they go to a journalist and they say, hey, can you write this as an as a article first? So it's like a piece of IP is the way they would refer to it. Um, and then we can set that up. And I feel like that's a kind of fraught. People have come to me with those things and I, I wouldn't do that myself. I don't begrudge anybody who does. But that to me is, I, I worry a little bit about the, the integrity of the magazine article if it if the whole idea from the get-go is that you have a producer attached and you're hoping, you know, you're going to spend six months doing something that in your heart of hearts you really hope will become something that's not the thing that you're doing. That seems a little weird to me. Um, 
The only other thing, I, you know, in terms of screenwriting that, that might be worth mentioning is that the, um, it's been really helpful for my journalism in terms of thinking about structure, which maybe is a bit counterintuitive. And I, I sort of only realized this recently, but in thinking about how you construct a scene and particularly how you transition from one scene to another, all my years as a failed screenwriter have, have, have at least at least hopefully paid dividends uh, in, in that respect. Well, that is a great note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us and um, all the best with your projects going forward. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers, Patrick. Take care. Hello, it's us again. Simon, how did you find the interview with Patrick? I really enjoyed it. I've known Patrick for a few years and he's been a, a kind of very gracious um, advisor and, and, and sort of mentor to me in various ways. So it was really excellent to have him on the show. Um, and I think always interesting, you know, from the outside, he looks like he's absolutely the top of his game and and, and really smashing out of the park and really interesting to, to go back to, you know, the beginning of his career and the challenges he had writing on the NSA and making his way at, at the New Yorker and so forth. And I think really really kind of humanizing to 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 peel that back I, I enjoyed it a lot Rachel what about you yeah I um Patrick had been on my sort of list target list of guests because I read say nothing last year and loved it um and I've read a few of his New Yorker pieces he wrote a great one about um I think it's at the, at the Met people who have, have like an amazing memory of people's faces and they're being employed by the Met to sort of go through camera footage near crime scenes and see if they can spot people which is just yeah um, would advise anyone checking that out. It's a really good read. But yeah, I really enjoyed talking to him and was particularly heartened to hear about his uh, screenwriting efforts and how they've made him a better journalist, um, which is obviously of interest to me doing screenwriting and studying all that side of things. If it makes me a better journalist, then that is great. <laughs> how is the screenwriting course going? Good. Um, I am actually about to listen to a talk after we finish recording this by Aaron Sorkin. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, hosted by BAFTA. I saw him give a talk at the South Bank, I think, a few years ago with his film about the snowboarder. Do you remember that? The no, She was like a, or a competitive winter sports person who then set up a, a poker game or something like that. Oh, Molly's Game. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw him give a talk at the premiere of that, which was really, was really interesting. I think so. This is about uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7, his new book. Uh, new book, new film. So I'm looking forward to that. I watched that actually, which no, I, I, I enjoyed that. Mm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I've never watched The West Wing. Yeah, neither. I was watching it with my girlfriend. It was like, this is a lot of uh, like very, you know, typical Sorkin-esque direction and, and stuff like that. So, mm. so I enjoyed that. How's your work going? Um, it's fine. Both, both Rachel and I have been struggling slightly to record record this this evening because we're somewhat a little bit exhausted, I think, from our respective things. But yeah, I'm in the middle of um, this magazine piece for Runner's World, which is about blisters. So it's meant to be like the definitive last word on blisters on your foot. Between the Premier Inn and the blisters, you're living the most glamorous journalistic life. It's just relentless. <laughs> So I've been talking to physiotherapists and uh, I talked to the people who make Compede yesterday, oh, yeah. you know, the, uh, the blister, blister plaster, um, and to a sock manufacturer today. Uh, so all, all sorts of things like that. But yeah, and as ever, just kind of juggling that with, um, with a whole sort of range of, of other things. So it's, um, yeah, keeping, keeping the various balls in the air. And I just, for this piece I'm doing for 1843, um, about contact tracers, so the follow-up to my big COVID story, I did the second edit on that over the weekend, which was fine. I'm really tempted to make a foot pun there, keeping you on your toes. <laughs> Sorry. 
the, the one I've been using actually a lot with um with the people with the people I've been interviewing is saying, have you got good that you've got skin in the game here? Oh. Uh, literally, when we're talking about talking about feet, so that's been been interesting. But yeah, just just trying to trying to kind of manage my time as efficiently as possible. And because I, I had this like Damascene moment earlier this autumn where I discovered the app Expensify. I don't know if you know about this, Rachel, but like I suddenly realized like this could save me having to like ever sit down with like a pile of receipts and, and go through that and things. And I was just like, this can save me so much time. So I'm currently trying to like on like a sort of efficiency drive as to anything I can do to just, yeah, reduce the amount of time I have to spend doing like admin stuff that is essential, but doesn't, I don't enjoy that much and things just because I feel I'm, I'm a bit kind of thinly spread but no it's, it's fine and this this story uh this story should be should be interesting um I'm also having a bit of a uh fight with another publication who shall remain nameless about um a story fee and stuff like that and, and late payment and that kind of thing which is is a tediously uh tediously predictable part of of this world as well we often often come up but yeah no it's all is good I think it's just uh just keeping all the, the balls in motion great well this has been always take notes hosted by me Rachel Lloyd and me Simon Aikham our producer and social media editor is Katie Lee our graphic design is by James Edgar our score is by Jess Danheiser if you'd like to follow us on social media you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at always take notes on Twitter at take notes always on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks.